Welcome, Wheatland. This is not cross-reference, and I feel I have to say that. This is <laughs> our other podcast that we do a little less frequently than our cross-reference. This we're calling yeah. Pastors and a Prof. And for those of you who've been waiting on the edge of your seats, and I know you all have been, all six listeners, um, is we are uh, tackling the issue of gender, and we, we did the first series on race, and we really, really wanted to. And Pastors, I'm looking you both in the eye at the same time, saying we really meant... To, to, to dive into this. And it's been less of a dive and more of a sort of crawl across the grass yeah. and slip into the pool sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully unnoticed. We've been uh, trying to get our little swimmies on yeah, and blow them up before we It just takes forever to get the intellectual swimmies on. Yeah. So here we, here we are <laughs> slipping into the pool with recording number two. I know, I dare say uh, a long time since we recorded number one. Right, um, right. So, so the, the issue we're, we're looking at is, is this understanding of, um, of gender and sexuality, uh, which is mm. obviously not only an important issue in the culture, broadly speaking, but has become more and more an issue inside the church. Mm -hmm. And this is a chance to carry on that conversation. Again, I just want to reiterate from the beginning here that and we've said this ad nauseum, so I apologize. But just for those who might listen to this recording and only this recording, that we're really not uh, attempting to, to come up broad or specific, I should say, solutions to this problem. You're not going to listen to this and go, that's how the church ought to deal with it. But as a place to carry on a dialogue, um, mm -hmm. as the pastors unpack this and prayerfully, as our congregation does specifically, mm -hmm. um, please use this as a springboard to come back and talk to us about these issues. Yeah. And the elder, or uh, we're, we're signing up the elders for this, whether they know it or not. Yep. <laughs> you guys <laughs> have been warned. You've been warned. <laughs> so see an elder. Uh, so, so this, this talk, we, we had a chance to unpack some basic concepts like how the church has dealt with these things over time, but now we're, we're sort of narrowing in maybe on what the scripture is saying. And we're, we want to look, and I think our conversation is how do we, how do we help our people frame the conversation? Like how, where do we go to just get the basic yeah. definitive pieces in? Like, what does it mean when we talk about these things? Um, mm -hmm. That as, as reformed folk, Protestants, we must say that the Bible has to provide that for us. Yeah. So, so where are we going to go to get this framework built for us and how can we start that conversation? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we're so eager to do, as you've said, is create a conversation uh, and create sort of a framework for a healthy conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what we're doing here is sort of modeling and also having it in having a healthy conversation together that invites others into it. Um, but one of the things we want to say from the beginning is like starting points in conversations are really important. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think in, in the heat of conversations, when we are emotionally wrapped up into conversations, we're not always careful about our starting points. And so mm -hmm. we maybe haven't thought about what we're already assuming mm -hmm. um, if we're not diligent about a starting point. So I think one of the things that we want to say uh, is that we are um, out of that, we, we are self-consciously agreeing, all three of us and uh, our church, to have a starting point that begins rooted in the scriptures mm -hmm. on this conversation. I think that's just a really helpful thing for us to do. And I think, of course, then that probably puts us back into my favorite book. <laughs> Here we go again. Genesis. Leduc, <laughs> shut up about Genesis already. But isn't that, isn't that uh, such a difference? Because it seems like the way the world talks about these issues, it starts with people's pain, which is real. And I think right. no one's saying that the pain that people feel around gender dysphoria or gender relations or gender place in society or their own sexuality is not real. Absolutely. But that we, we have to start somewhere to address that sort of a thing we have mm -hmm. to start at the bible so not not saying that starting points means that to ignore other things that are real but it does say that we've got to begin the conversation somewhere right to really address our struggle is to go to the scriptures so it's not like going to the bible going to genesis is dismissing someone's pain or struggle or confusion it's actually going to the very place that will uh, help us and bring comfort because yeah. we've tried all the other places and they're not working and we haven't found them to be helpful. Not that I'm encouraging us to try every other place, but that's what we do as humans. And then we ultimately 
uh, hopefully are brought back to the scriptures to find that, oh, this actually is the place that God's word and his spirit working in us, this actually is the place where we find comfort and encouragement and clarity in the midst of all of our struggles. And then the scriptures have to tell us what that pain really is. And the scriptures mm -hmm. have to tell us why that pain is real and have to point to us towards, even, even it may not be the solution we're looking for. It, may, it has to point us where that gets resolved or, or if it gets resolved in a world of sin prior to mm -hmm. the kingdom of God. Because I think one of the things that the world is saying is if, if there's these, these problems, they, they have to be managed and solved absolutely. And scripture doesn't really say that. It admits there's real problems, but it also looks to Christ as a solution, which isn't here necessarily, or at least permanently. Right. So let, let's go back then. If, if that's the case, we're going we're gonna to one more time mm. um, go back to Genesis. The, there's a lot of deep framing that goes on about humanity in this. And mm. one, of the, one of the pieces I think that gets confused now in this conversation is that Genesis doesn't seem to have a clear picture of gender while it does have a very clear picture of sexuality. Mm -hmm. that, that there's, there's not a clear laying out of what this gender thing is or gender roles in society. And I think sometimes if you go back and look there, you might, you might not find it. But what you do find is a very clear picture of this thing called sexuality and that that is rich and full. Not that we push the question of gender off, but it seems like that's not the clear focus at this point. So maybe, maybe just a quick defining of terms. I think we've done this before, but again, just the difference between sexuality and gender. And then let's look at maybe how Genesis frames the one for us. So if you could, gentlemen, one of you can tackle this. Mm -hmm. um, give us a give us a distinction between those two things. Yeah, I would yeah. say um, biological sex, which is what I think uh, Genesis one and two primarily are addressing or or providing a foundation for. The biological sex is the the physical nature of male and female, and when we get to gender and we think about gender in our culture and gender even in the scriptures it's the the experience maybe i don't know if the psychological is the right yeah. word but it's it's our experience of our biological sex hmm. so that's how i make the difference that biological sex is the physical nature of being male and female and gender is then our experience of that okay. physicalness okay. luke want to develop that any further well yeah it, i think one of the things that i've thought that's interesting is Gender is almost never alone there. When, when you think of the word gender and especially how it's used now, there are gender roles, there are gender characteristics, there are gender identities, those sorts of things. It's almost a modifier for a whole host of experiences that you have within um, a biological sex. And so I think, yeah, I affirm what Keith is saying is like what we have here. And again, it doesn't discount all those experiences. It doesn't discount all of all of the roles and that sort of thing. But what we have at the beginning and in the beginning here is a biological sex that is differentiated um, and delineated one from the other. And uh, that's, I think, probably the helpful starting point that we were looking for, yeah. at least in my mind. No, that's good because I, I think what I, I think we want to say is here there are great implications of sexual distinction. There, mm -hmm. Being a woman means something. Being a man mm -hmm. means something. Even in the creation story and how that mm -hmm. unfolds, but that there that there are these. And I to Keith, yeah, this idea of experience. I think you could also maybe from another angle say the same thing. Culture mediates those things. Um, that culture comes mm -hmm. up with its terms for how we're to experience and sets values for. You should experience your your femaleness this way, and you should experience their maleness this way. So that gender always comes with a cultural mediation. I think it's, yeah, it always comes mm -hmm. with this. It is how you experience it. And then it is always mediated to you. You think ancient, you know, Near East or Middle Eastern cultures have a very different way of describing mm -hmm. or expecting you to be male, as opposed to, you know, say Western mm -hmm. European, Latin American, African, they all have something different. Mm -hmm. So there's something yeah. root based true about our sexuality that has these implications for who we are, how we identify ourselves, even how we relate to one another. That is not cultureless in the garden, but it sets up some framing that then cultures afterwards will then pick up these pieces and mm -hmm. develop all of these very specific mediating ideas, like here's how to be a man and here's how to be a yeah. woman. And I, I wonder, um, it's interesting to me that uh, as we see 
these, if we're, if we're back in Genesis and we're here just sitting with this narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, let's say, there seems to be a lot of, <clears throat> there is the distinction and the delineation of biological sex, man and woman. But in the, but in the original opening narrative, there's really a lot of parody between man and woman in who they are before God and what they're meant to do. And I think that's an interesting, um, uh, it's an interesting thing to note that um, a lot of what we would think of as these gender differences that like you say, you point out, Dan, come up culturally and are, and are mediated and mandated in some way by culture. Like if we're looking at the Genesis one and two story, there's these clear distinctions. Um, and, and even the beginning definition of some roles uh, or at least um, different aspects, but both Adam and Eve with a distinct sexual biological identity are co-rulers in the task that God had given them. And I think that's an interesting thing to note from the beginning. It's not that there aren't things that develop and as the story goes on, but from the beginning, there's these biological sexual differences that work together under one mandate. God creates us male and female, and then he gives all, then he gives all of us, uh, male and female, this role, which what Luke's describing here, even in creating us male and female, an idea is already introduced that there will be uni unity in what we do, uh, which is spelled out foundationally. We are unified in bearing God's image and exercising dominion and being co-rulers and co-laborers but that also there will be some diversity in being male and female and that that's not spelled out here. Um, but it's introduced like, Oh, this is, this is coming and you're going to experience uh, some differences, but foundationally uh, you are, you are male and female, you are human, you are man created in the image of God. So there's this foundational idea of unity and that's spelled out, but there's this introduction to, Oh, there will be differences uh, there are differences, and and you'll see these as time goes on. Well, let's let's look at that because I, I think this is then what we want to look at is what what are those samenesses? What are those what are those similarities? But what are those distinctions? Because I if I remember my you know some ancient Eastern context here, the fact that a woman would share identity with a man is a bit unique and probably a bit radical for the day. We say here, oh, you got God creating man in His image, and then sort of creating Eve in Adam's image, which sounds a little derivative of Adam with this whole rib business. Um, but at the same time, at the, at the time, this was considered really radical that you'd have women at the same level as men. So we do have some similarities. There are some, there are some shared um, identities here, but then there are, there are some real distinctions that follow from creation stories. So if we can tackle them in that order, uh, what do we see are some of the similarities then about the man and the woman? Um, in the creation story, yeah. even though there's sexual distinctions. Yeah, I think I think one of the first things, um, obviously, and, and maybe Keith mentioned this, or you you mentioned this, but um, when you get into Genesis 1, 26 and 27, um, the first thing we notice is the image of God. That is a huge um, first order sort right. of thing in which both biological sexes share. And sometimes I think when we look at the English, it can be a little bit confusing. Um, if you were just looking at the English, it says, so God created man in his own image. Hmm. In the image of God created he him, male and female, he right. created them. Um, when it says, so God created man, that's not actually referring to male. Hmm. That's actually the generic term for humanity, Adam, like, mm. which means from the ground, it's, it's humanity. Adam doesn't become the name until a little bit later in the narrative uh, flow. So I think it's important to say, in even my understanding of 26 and 27, 
when it says in 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. I think probably in any good, um, any good study Bible, it'll say something like what I'm looking at. The Hebrew word for man, Adam, is the generic term for mankind and then becomes the proper name Adam. So I, I think it's just interesting to note that what we're seeing here at the beginning is humankind being made male and female. So there's almost this sense in which they're halves of a whole, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. And the idea that a woman would, that there's, there's parity here, right? That there's mm -hmm. essential equality or essential sameness, that they're both bearing the image of God. And certainly the idea that marriage as a model of putting them together, um, and there's some scriptural idea that they belong together, although I, I think Paul's pretty clear that not everyone is to be married. I'm not saying that, mm -hmm. but right. there does seem to be a creational order, in which case, as you say, these two belong in their sexual identity, mm. in their maleness and their females, they belong together right. as a whole, but, but that each one of them bears the image of God at the same time. So it's not like, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem that, that they're, if they're broken, the image of God is halved. Um, right or more than complete i'm not sure we can call right. language for that yeah yeah that's a good point dan yeah i think that uh the idea later that it's not good for man to be alone does and can be applied to marriage but i think it more broadly applies to the idea that we are interdependent and yeah. that and that we need each other that we that we're not 50 percent that that I'm not 50% of a human. And then Melanie wasn't 50% of an image bearer. And thankfully got, we got married. So now we are 100% uh, complete, but that we are both 100% people. Um, and, and then we get married and we don't make a 200%. We're still 100%. Yeah. But, but Keith, I would say that you probably weigh about half of what- Of a human? Yeah. So there <laughs> is one sense. In which some, you press there is this. some scientific truth. Yeah, 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 yes. Biologically speaking, you're right. I am, I am half. Yeah. There's this interdependence that, that, we, that we see. Um, and even in this idea of be fruitful and multiply, oh, well, you're not doing that on your own. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're, we're interdependent and it doesn't mean that we're, we're incomplete. And I was also thinking too, of this idea of being, uh, created in God's image. And I could be wrong. You guys are smarter than me, so I'll throw it out and then you can say yes or no. But if, if Moses is in a, in a written form, I'm sure this is all orally passed down uh, plenty, but in a written form providing this for the people of Israel sometime after the exodus from Egypt before they enter the promised land, I, I think they're still shedding the, the untruth that they heard about themselves as humans in Egypt. Hmm. Like they're still shedding this story that you are merely tools for uh, the uh, Egyptian society. And, and so for, for them to hear this, I mean, this is, this shatters the sort of things that they may had been told over and over again, or at the very least, the way that they've been used, uh, had told them that they were merely for production and pleasure. But now God establishes this brand new thing, uh, through Moses writing this down that mm. now like you're, you're made in my image. You're not what you've been told. You're not what it's difficult for you to see yourselves as these people who are valuable, but you are male and female valuable. And actually you will be productive, but it's going to be in a completely different way than, than you heard about yeah. when you were in Egypt. I hate to say it this way, but this is cultural apologetics. <laughs> Genesis yeah. one through 11 yeah. is cultural apologetics for God's people, reframing who they understood themselves to be. And if that is what's going on, we see it very clearly. Okay, let's skip over Genesis uh, 1 and 2 in the relationship to what it means to be made in God's image for a minute. But if this is cultural, if Genesis 1 and the creation narrative is cultural apologetics in the way that we sort of framed it in our series on Genesis, saying, okay, it's not these other gods, these are not the origin stories, this is what the origin story is, it's Yahweh who comes and hovers over the disorder. If you get to the places that uh, we looked at in Genesis 3 and 4 and see how 
the story that Moses is telling the people is meant to subvert and cut off at the knees other uh, cultural narratives so that the people can be redefined as God defines them as he rescues them. I think we come back to this image of God stuff and it makes it mean way more than Dan, what I think you've pointed out with insight is what sort of maybe sort of broad evangelical usages of image of God has done where it's automatically meant image of God means human dignity, which means, oh, in a sense that heightens my autonomy, right? In a sense, whereas, oh, wait a minute. If we go back to this as a cultural apologetic, in a sense, the radical shift is, I think maybe Keith said it, uh, you are not your own. That's the radical shift that's begun here. Right. And can we, can we say gentlemen, that one of the, one of the starting points of what we're doing is framing is that when we find out, uh, not that we're saying definitively what it is, once we find out what God has called us to be in our manness and our womanness, it's probably not going to be easy, or at least it's not going to be necessarily intuitive that, that this is who I want and therefore this is who I am. But if we're image bearers, then we always have to bring our view of that back to God's view of it, which means it's, it's always going to be work, mm-hmm. labor, using, using Keith's word here, that there's always yeah. more work to be done. Yeah, there's always going to be a real tension that exists in, yep. that, in that work. Yeah, that, I, if yeah, you think but, about, um, so it's my understanding that kings and their kingdom in the ancient Near East used to place images around the edges of their kingdom. So when you come into their kingdom, you would know whose kingdom it was. And so in a sense, when this language is used of being image bearers, now we as humans, people see us and we recognize, oh, this is God's, this is God's kingdom. And so when we are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, now we're taking this visible picture that this is God's kingdom everywhere throughout the earth. And so, but what you're alluding to, Dan, which is interesting is that our tendency is, so if I'm a little image bearer and I'm placed out in the far reaches of, of the kingdom, my tendency out there is to start chiseling away. Like, oh, well. Oh, I don't like, like this so much. I'd like to adjust this, this section here. And, and sooner or later, um, I mean, that, that's our sin. It's marring the image of God. And so, yeah, we chisel away and, and adjust things because, oh, now, now it's the way that I'm more comfortable with. And but now we aren't bearing the image of God uh, to the world in the way that we were meant to, and so that that's us. And we can do that with uh, we can do that with the way we we see being male and female as well. I mean, we do it broadly um, when our sin in general, but this sin also affects the way that we we see being male and female. And this this then creates, I think, we're we're getting at at least some idea of a starting point. But the starting point has to be God's declaration of us, God's creation of us and who he intended us to be and the image he wants us to bear rather than the image mm-hmm. we'd like to bear ourselves. Because quite frankly, a lot of things God asked me to, I don't like, and I would prefer mm-hmm. that he not ask me to do those things or allow me to do things I want to do. But he's called me to, yeah, to look like Christ in some way to imitate him and to bear that image, which means even the work of sexual identity and sexual activity is going to be something that's maybe difficult or may run at odds with the kind of things Mm -hmm. I want to be. But my starting point is not, my starting point is that I don't want it, but my starting point is also, I need to actually bring those things in line with whose image I'm bearing. get into the narrative a little bit and see you know this this idea of dignity in the image is something we both have both men and women have to bring ourselves back to what god has called us to be what are some of the distinctions in the text then um, that give us some sense of, of sexual difference what what a man is and what a woman is are there some things in that genesis 1 text luke you've given us the idea that they're yeah. created in oneness as as you know the image of god in two parts in one sense yeah. but is there anything in the way the creation story unfolds that gives us a sense of distinction yeah, I think Keith alluded to it um, earlier, 
and and that is the that is the sense in which um, well the order in which the creation of male and female unfolds is uh, creates this natural distinction um, in which God creates humankind as um, male and then sees that it is insufficient in a sense because of its aloneness uh, as man as alone. And so then uh, it's out of that, it, it's out of that idea of incompleteness that God then puts Adam to sleep and takes a portion of Adam and uses that to create Eve. And so I think that's sort of the beginning of the discussion of the distinctions, at least as if we're following the narrative and we think the narrative means something and we do, then we would want to say the way in which Adam and Eve were created is distinct. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make any theological points with that at the moment, but just to say, okay, the way in which um, Eve's creation comes about is a, is a different thing than the way Adam is created in mm -hmm. a sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that's at least a place to begin to note this. If we're, if we're going to do what we said we do and take the narrative seriously. Right. Yeah. And it, and it becomes tricky because again, the scriptures don't, at least Genesis doesn't give us a clear sense of what the theological Im implications right. of, you know, Eve being born of a rib of Adam. Right. But there, there, maybe there are some clues and hints in the text as to why. And I, I think there's some fun theology mm -hmm. we could toy with, which I wouldn't use this space to experiment with. Um, about what the place that Adam and Eve all have inside of creation and over mm -hmm, it. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think the text does give some clues in the sense that we've got Adam who's looking for a help mate and that there's mm -hmm. some concept there. And I know Leslie Bustard in our church mm -hmm, has done a lot of work mm -hmm. with what that might mean. So there seems to be a role difference in some way mm -hmm, that, that, mm -hmm. that Adam has a certain role and that he's looking for someone to fulfill another role. So there's something about that. There's also something about this naming thing mm -hmm. um, and what it meant in the ancient Near East to name. And so, and so, and so Adam calls his wife Eve. Um, that, that naming has a certain role, even where, wherever that plays in the narrative. So, I mean, without, without being too specific, I don't know that we want to dance around things, but does the text give us any sense of what the functional difference um, in sexuality might be between the man and the woman as we see them here? I think so. And even, even just in that first initial command of to be, to be fruitful and multiply, like there are, there will be, I mean, they're, they are created as male and female with bodies. And that, that, that is an immediate distinction when Adam and Eve are, are created that, mm. oh, we have different bodies. We look differently. And then there's a, a command given to be fruitful and multi multiply, which then immediately shows that they will have different roles to play in, mm -hmm. in this work of being fruitful and multiply. Um, and then, and then those things that you pointed out, this idea that Adam is, Adam names all, all these, all these creatures and then, and then Adam names Eve and, um, and then Adam sits there. And when he sees Eve, like he, when he's blown away by Eve, obviously there's distinction in what he sees between <laughs> himself. But then it's interesting, even, even in the midst of that, how he recognizes the, the he's visually recognizing their distinction. Um, and then also, but then he, and he audibly recognizes their, their unity in his, um, this alas is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Like he, he even speaks of how um, they're, they're unified. Like it's this, it's a beautiful picture, I think continually throughout the story of one and two of the unity and diversity of male and female, how they are, they are both image bearers, they're both human, but also there's, there's these differences that are physically obvious to, to each other and also differences in the way that, that God creates, like you said, God creates Adam and then he brings Eve uh, into his life or into the world in order to bring about this um, helper, the strength mm -hmm. of a helper that is absolutely necessary for Adam to have. Well, certainly, and certainly as our culture is seeing sexuality as something that's very fluid, mm -hmm. scripture does not, does not pr provide that. It doesn't really allow for that. And, and the idea that somehow 
the sexuality of the person is something that's created by the person or determined by them, um, however they might want to see it. It's also not really upheld well here. What seems to be upheld is that God places a very high value in the sexual identity of Eve, mm-hmm. such that he creates it. It's, it's, a, it's a product of his creative genius and brilliance and wonder mm-hmm. that he would make this. And the value comes from him making it, not either Eve participating in or Adam. I, I think you're right. There's there's something um, there's something divine, and I, I think a lot of Christian exactly. writers have done a lot with this. There's something divine about the woman yeah. being a woman, as and, much as there's something divine about a man being a man. And this, of course, I think is what Adam recognizes in 23, where he says, "This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I haven't willed it into existence. I haven't created this, but the, it's undeniable that this is." bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man well and 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 those those things i mean since we're talking about male and female as biological sex like none of this happens unless you have a an appropriate uh appropriately high view of the body and like that's what makes us biologically male and female, our bodies, that our bodies aren't this additional attachment that was an afterthought when God had this soul and wasn't trying to figure out what to do with it, uh, that, that he creates us. He creates us body and soul and that our bodies, right. uh, our body soul together is, is, what, uh, is what makes us image bearers of God. We are image bearers of God as body and soul, not as a soul with this, uh, this cage that we that we sit in. And now it's like, how do I deal with this cage the rest of my life? No, like you being male and you being female is an essential part yeah. of who you are. And I, th- I think that is a huge uh, impediment for modern people, modern Western people, as they begin to consider biological sex. Mm. One of the huge impediments is that we have been conditioned over, it's not just our modern, it, it's a human thing. <laughs> I, I think if we were to go back to the ancient Near East and think about conceptions of body, I, I bet you would discover uh, discover really some interesting parallels to the modern world. But this idea that what's really true and what's really us is... Uh, somehow separate from the physical body. And I think what we're seeing in these texts, this intentionality with the ribs and the flesh and bone of my bone and, 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 and all of that is that the body has something to say as well as the soul and the spirit, um, that this right. is all very carefully part of your identity and they can't be just extracted um, so easily as maybe we moderns have come to think they can. Well, and there is a tendency, right, without using big seminary words like Gnosticism, but I think there's always mm-hmm. been this tendency to want to find some identity that is itself purified or nowadays more authentically me than the things I can't control, like the body I was born into. And I, you know, I, I wonder even if medically we've, we've really gotten the habit of, of, of naming the disorders we have as if somehow they're not part of us. Well, that's my disease. That's my disorder. That's not me. At some point you end up at this Gnostic point where I am something mm-hmm. and then my body is just really just, just a hindrance or an obstacle mm-hmm. to what I, the kind of things I want to be and want to do. So we can cartoonalize ourselves into a Marvel character and now be free of all those sorts of things. And we're still ourselves, mm-hmm. but, but the, whatever the culture is doing, Scriptures don't seem, I think you're right, Keith, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, don't, I don't think Genesis provides space for that, that analysis. Mm-hmm. That in fact, that the body created is as precious to God in the identity of Eve and, and, um, and Adam, as, as is the soul that was breath breathed into them, that the two are inextricably linked. And there's no space here mm-hmm. to say, well, he created this spirit, and then he was wandering around looking for a body to throw it in. Yeah. It seems like the body. Where's the first. Tupperware? Where's yeah. the, the Tupperware? <laughs> Where's the for this doggone thing? <laughs> I got this yeah. leftovers. Well, right, it's interesting. I, I remember reading um, when we were, when Luke uh, mostly and I were preaching through Genesis. Uh, well, I guess we still are, because that never does stop, does it? But um, wow. like when we were early in Genesis reading about the word that's used for rib because we're you know it's kind of confusing what's actually going on there but it's 
but it's most often used to describe like pieces of, of the temple or, or the tabernacle. And so like it was like even the word that's used is later used to describe these sacred pieces of, of God's temple. And it's like, oh, well, so that's a, Moses, is, Moses is making this point. Hey, the, the body, the body is this sacred thing. Mm-hmm. It is not, it's not just a, a thing. It's not, it's yeah. not Tupperware. It's, it's a sacred thing. And it was even like you just mentioned, Dan, it was even made first. It's like a body and then life was breathed into it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't right. even a secondary thought. This yeah, is that, primary. Yeah, right. that's a really great point. Um, we talk a lot about creation order, the order of things in creation and, and those meaning something. So that's a really good point. But I think also like going back to if this is, if this is not just how, if this is not just a movie script for or how man and woman sprang into being, if this is theological and cultural apologetics, mm. then this is actually what we would expect in a sense to be seeing is that this is undercutting what was an ancient Near Eastern way of disregarding um, human bodies in the way that ancient civilizations also often treated human bodies with uh, sort of a uh, expendability that we we right. we moderns find um, awful and aghast. And yet, well, how have we treated the right. human bodies with a sense of expendability? Um, maybe not in the way that the ancients did, but with our own right. sophisticated way of the human body's expendable. Right. And that's that's a really important, I think, co- continuity here to show is that we could say, well, back then they killed people without without cause, but they they had a view that there were there were things longer than just physical life. So to them, mm-hmm. that was less costly. We in our modern, we have a very low view of anything eternal or after this life. But then we have no problem just, you know, butchering the body in the process, however we however we want to. So I think I think there are continuities there worth worth looking at that that mm-hmm. somehow for for Moses to say that the body of Eve and the body of Adam are sacred. I think, as you said, Keith, sacred things, which I think is really, really true. This is this is a this is a sacred creation. And so much of the criticism that God has of Israel is the abuse of the body, um, the abuse of women as women, the abuse of men, the abuse of the body, the, the, mm. the killing. And, and really, our culture has probably only gotten a high view of the of humanity in general because it's a because it's come from a Christian view of things where right. the body is sacred um, that you don't just kill. In fact, that's what you're getting at. I think Keith, when, when we looked at the Noah Covenant, that God's clear that killing a human person, which is destroying the body, not destroying the soul, because killing does not destroy the soul. Mm-hmm. Killing certainly does destroy the body. That that is something that God has no patience for, um, even though the soul endures and is unmarred by it still it's the body that matters here yeah and then paul will take in first corinthians 6 so like he just he takes this idea and brings it over to uh the new testament and and our relationship to the to the holy spirit and that, that now our body is is a temple of the holy spirit and that's where i think it's really interesting when moses uses language in the creation account that refers that is then used when they speak about the physical construction of the tabernacle and temple. And then Paul says, Hey, your body is a temple. Like this, this theme, it starts in Genesis one and two, and it just keeps going and going that your, your body is an essential part of who you are as a person, you being male and female sexual beings is essential. And so for Paul, that's why it matters so much what we do Mm. with our bodies, because it's not, it's not a throwaway. It's not, it's not something that we could, you, oh, I could take it or leave it. Uh, this is an essential part of who you are. This is just further proof that all we really need is Genesis, guys. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what all this further proves. Well, if you can't start there, then you can't start anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. yeah. And then, and then the, the framing is not, and I think we're getting at this sort of the framing is how we think about the importance of the body and how we think about the importance of our sexual identities and, and Keith you made a good point that even and then thought about that but even in the in the be fruitful multiply the very essential work of of humanity requires our sexual identities mm-hmm. and our sexual beings and one of the comments we made off screen at one point a while ago was the one thing I think Luke you said this if I remember right 
one thing our culture gets right is sexuality is important. <laughs> right. I love, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I love that idea <laughs> that, that we can affirm the reason you are wrestling with this because your sexuality does matter in profound ways. Yeah. 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 To your yeah. identity, to your identity and what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that, and that it, it, it is so important and that the fall as it affects everything affects affects our interaction with with our bodies and so of course now we are going to struggle with what it means to be male and female and we're going and and some people are going to find um uh live in conflict with that that their experience uh is is in some way they're experiencing their sexuality different than their body Of, of course these things are going to happen and and of course in the same way that we are should be compassionate uh, in our truth telling towards people who are struggling with all sorts of effects of the fall, this is the same. This is the, that must be our same approach. It shouldn't be, well, come mm-hmm. on, like God made, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam yeah. and Steve or whatever, like whatever <laughs> stupid thing that we, we've uh, historically said, like, no, we, we must have compassion because right. our bodies are, are, are sacred and significant and essential and the fall affects all of that. Mm. And I think, I mean, I think this is one of the things that I'm excited uh, for us to be doing as pastors and elders, or is this two pastors and a professor? I forget where we're at. Two pastors and a professor, yes. And an elder. Yeah, but anyway, the point (laughs) is, but the point is, um, if for, if a lot of the um, accusation, if a lot of the uh, fair critique of the church has been, well, you all uh, have struggled to really take sexuality seriously, or you have failed to listen carefully to um, the pain of brothers and sisters who are struggling in these areas. And I think there's a lot of fair critique that we um, ought to sit with and listen to and nod our heads vigorously to. Uh, as Keith was saying, maybe it's just one of these dismissive statements that um, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I can't understand why you struggle with this. What what we're saying with our conversation, what we're trying to do is come back to the scriptures and say, we are people of the book. I mean, that is who we are because the scriptures are um, God's revelation to us. And so now we're going to walk through this and take it, take it very seriously And I think this is part of what the conversation has to do for our people and for our time and for our congregation is to show both all of us together where we have not been careful or thoughtful or actually, let's just say it, biblical and scriptural and submitted to the scriptures. One of the other features of this I'd like to bring up is that, and and I don't know if we see it quite in this text, but Luke, you said a while ago, as we read scripture, we have to learn to read scripture backwards. Mm -hmm. As we see God unfold an idea, we go back and reread the original idea. And I think the the idea that becomes so constant throughout scriptures is this idea that that God is the husband and Israel is is the wife. And that's a constant theme that the church Mm -hmm. is the spouse of, of, of Christ that somehow in this, we also get something paradigmatic, not just only, and I think it's crucial, but the body is a significant creation of God and, and, and sacred, which I think is a beautiful place to start. That in the way that the man and woman relate to one another is not really just up to us either, but that that relationship has been designed to teach the world how God loves his people and how his people loves their God. And I don't, I don't know if we want to get into the long biblical story of that, but mm-hmm. I think there are some there are probably paradigmatic pieces at the beginning to say, even in the way that they're to relate to one another is not ultimately up to Adam and Eve, that they are, they're supposed to be living out something that becomes a picture to the world of how God loves his people. I don't know if there's anything specific to draw to the text in that regard. We could probably, we could probably speculate a few things. Yeah. About the role of well, Adam and Eve. well, I think, I think something that we've already pointed out, or maybe it was you, Dan or Keith, but this idea of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth um, has to, has to mean that there is a sexuality 
to the husband and wife marriage that's just implicit from the beginning. And no one needs a biology course at this point, I hope, to, to no, explain how that's supposed no, to work, correct? I, I don't Assume. think so. Let's make assumptions. Yep. You guys are, uh, I see you. Most of our people are proven procreators out there. So, <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of proof running around on Sunday. Uh, but, but I do think that um, when you start looking at the relationship between the husband and wife is not actually the ultimate. And I think that's one of the things that I would want to say to this is that the relationship even between husband and wife, if we're reading, like I say, the scriptures backwards, actually archetypal is Christ and his people. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the primary relationship. That's That's Paul's point. Right. Yeah. Of which marriage is simply, um, a, a lesser and um, through a glass darkly sort of idea of the union and communion of Christ and his church. Mm. And so I think that's at least one place to start when we, when we think of it is to, is to not get the order mixed up that marriage is first. And then that represents right. it's no Christ and the church is the theme of the scriptures. The tell us the end. Yeah. The and end. somehow this, this begins to help us fill that out. That's good. And there, but there are some pieces. I mean, I think we could say there are some pieces in the way the creation story unfolds that bears that out. If you have, mm-hmm. a, if you have Adam naming, which is in a way of controlling and bringing order mm-hmm. in his way, naming the animals wasn't just, you know, some Aesop's fable of choosing the word bear or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was to name, to own control, put in their place where they belong, that that lays the groundwork for Eve to come. There's work being done creationally for her. And Paul talks later about self-sacrificial for her while she then responds with some reverence that there's something they're each giving to one another mm-hmm. that is profound, essential, and different, but not lesser. Not, not, not that the, the woman's giving back to, to Adam or Adam's giving to that's lesser, but there does a distinction that what Christ yeah. gives to the church is one thing, what the church right. gives to Christ is something else. And that's when I think when you start looking at even in Genesis 3, where we struggle after the fall with, with our sort of interdependence on one another uh, in relationships, male and female, there, there immediately becomes this, this uh, battle. There's a, there's a battle over roles. There's a battle over what function each of us are going to perform because immediately after sin, now we, we develop internally this sort that, that uh, roles mean hierarchy, which means value, which means worth. And that's not, that's not something that, ever happens in the unity and diversity of the triune God. There's not a, a, a distinction in what the spirit does and what the son does and what the father does never speaks at all to any value or worth because they're all, they're all working together to carry out this covenant of grace and redemption. And so that, so now men and women in the scriptures work together to carry out this call of being image bearers to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And there's never any mention or any allusion to the idea that this implies anything about a difference in value and worth. It's always different role, different functions, all for the same thing, which is the glory of God and the spreading of God's kingdom. And this is this is where, Luke, if you're saying cultural apologetics is so important, is to reset our own cultural life in the church around what God's establishing mm-hmm. us to not, I think, in one sense, give in to this modern concept that power... Uh, powerlessness is the lack of dignity that if you are mm-hmm. under someone else's power you are not a dignified human being is not a biblical concept because in fact it's coming under and i think paul gets at this to be a slave to christ is the most dignifying thing one could be and not saying slavery is equivalent here but certainly the concept that coming under the power of someone else is not an undignified thing i just i just think we're caught there's a culture and i and our people and i, I know we'll struggle with this because of what we get fed constantly is to come back and see Genesis and then be offended by the mm-hmm. fact that somehow if, if, if uh, you know, if Adam is the one in power in this situation, that somehow automatically Eve is, is discounted, is, is just a, a total misunderstanding. And it's the wrong culture. God actually sets a very different culture yeah. for, for them and for us. Yeah. And I think um, when you start th- talking about these biblical, the biblical um, categories of authority and submission, like uh, I think those are even 
I think that word authority is is an even more um, sort of carefully nuanced word. What I here's what I would want to say: authority and power are different things. It seems to me that power um, is something that people are taking or grasping for. Again, I, I would want to do this, but authority, as I understand it in the scriptures, is something that God gives to someone who receives it underneath a greater authority because they've received it from someone. In other words, you receive authority, and it's very clear that the authority that we receive is received with accountability to the one who had the power to give it to us in a sense. And I think that's part of, part of the work of the church in this sense is to model what authority is and the distinction of it from the idea of power. Because I think you could say that word and have a whole lot of, uh, a whole gambit of reactions to that uh, whether it's authority or power, I think a lot of people would lump those two together. And I think, well, wait, I would want to have a discussion about what people mean by that and, and really go back to these two ideas of authority and submission that are all over in the Christian scriptures and, and in the narrative. And I think it's that one thing, like you're saying, Dan, or maybe it was Keith, but I think it was Dan. Uh, once that, once the fall happens and I'll, and the idea and the lure and the attraction of autonomy gets into the equation, then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve have both rebelled against God. And now the question is, if it's autonomy that they've grasped for, they can't grasp for it perfectly together. They are both not, there's no way for both of them to be perfectly autonomous and together against God. And thus, to me, I think I begin to see the unraveling and, and the difficulty in a relationship where now, let's say man and woman, you've got a, a Adam and Eve as a married couple, then whose autonomy do you go with there against God? Do you go with Adam's autonomy against God or Eve's autonomy against God? And I think that's, of course, the things, the, the issues, the, the difficulties that we're still working out in relationships between the sexes, in a sense. Yeah, I, I would, and I, I might disagree a little only just because I think the idea authority always comes with power. Authority, to me, is not always when someone has the right to wield it. Power is the ability to accomplish something, and it's to command and to for someone to obey, um, which obedience is a difficult concept these days. We're very squeamish about that sort of a thing, because it sounds like yeah. if you have to obey someone, somehow you've lost the dignity to be your own person, which I'll go back to what you said, Luke. I think autonomy is the lure here. And um, I think we even, we even approach Christ at, well, I'll follow Christ if it looks like he's been really nice and kind. <laughs> and if he's got the proper authority, yeah. I, I see him saying, look, you'll, you'll obey me because I am the one that speak with the voice of the father. And therefore I am the authority and I have the power to do that. And I, I think there's just a, a squeamishness around that concept just because yeah. of the way we view it. But I, I don't disagree ultimately with your, the thought that right. the belief that scripture actually lays out authority as a specific thing granted by God that has to follow certain rules. So if someone's right. abusive, they right. don't have the right to wield that. That, right. that certainly is true. Yeah. But, but I, I do think that there's a, there's a, there's a fear around the fact that as soon as we become obedient, we somehow lose mm -hmm. our dignity as human beings. And mm -hmm. I just, I see the opposite happen in scripture. I think yeah, obedience and, is actually dignifying. Well, it is obedience that it, it is obedience in the life of Jesus, obedience to the right. point of death. Right. That, means that he is um, given the name that's above every name. It's sort of right. the way it, it is, it is that, that obedience by which he becomes the king, in a sense. I think, too, that's, I think, uh, because we have a faulty view of obedience and its relationship mm -hmm. to freedom. And mm -hmm. like you mentioned earlier, something like our culture our culture does get it right that sexuality uh, and gender are essential to who we are. And in, in relation to that, like we see free, often see true freedom as the, um, the ability to be and who, whoever we want to be. 
Yeah. Uh, but freedom in the scriptures is recognizing that it's God who made us very good. And it's God who establishes a pattern for life. And now I can actually, my, I, I experience true freedom and true freedom related to my sexuality when I recognize that my value and my worth is given to me is a gift right. from God. And now freedom is not expressing myself in a particular way and getting, hoping to get affirmation from other people around me. Right. But freedom is now living out in obedience to that gift that God has given me. And that, that is that is submission to God and it's obedience, but it's also freedom because it's mm -hmm. the way that we are meant to be. Right. Right. Yeah, that's really good, Keith. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking since we started talking was we're given an image in Genesis one and two of human flourishing and that we can't dismiss all of these things that we've been talking about as far as um, biological sex and body as important and sexuality as core of who we are um, within the framework that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. All of that is describing, it's not just describing who you are, it is describing what it looks like for humanity to flourish. Mm -hmm. And that's a, if you believe the scriptures, I think what you're saying, Keith, is that, friends, this is freedom. This is, <laughs> this is the rest that you're longing yeah. for and uh, we don't want to deny the dysphoria like you said dan we don't want to deny the real pain that is there we don't want to ever look away from a brother or sister who is in a deep and dark place but what we want to do is to say let us offer you this place of flourishing mm -hmm. that may not feel like it at this point yeah. So the, so the, if we could wrap the conversation back around sort of where we started, this is that we come back to these, this essential truth that we are in our created identity, who we are made to be ultimately dignified by his divinity, by his, his character, and then derivative of him and therefore made to made to act like him made to obey and follow. And I, the idea that that, that brings us flourishing, Luke, I think is a great language because it's, it's hard to say it's going to be easy and it's not to say mm -hmm. if you really want to if, and i you know i've heard christian if you really want to be happy come to christ i'm not sure that's quite right i think if you really want to struggle in new ways come to christ but <laughs> but the reality is you you actually come to grips with who you were meant to be and we and 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 we're looking forward to that being resolved not here but there's a rest and a faith knowing that god will resolve it ultimately and, and maybe mm -hmm. that's something just to, to bear out in this we're talking about something that is creational um, and something that is telic, you know, something that will, mm -hmm. will be eventually, but may not be now. And, exactly. and, and the waiting for God to make all of this right is our rest. And I, somehow these two ideas get tied in together. We wait with a, with a hope, Paul says, and a confidence, knowing full well that it will happen, even if it doesn't happen, happen now. Yeah. And that is flourishing. That is Sabbath rest. And this is a great, uh, a great idea to tackle during advent right with the season you know? of waiting for a coming well gentlemen this is this has been a starting point just so everyone here knows we're going to try not to have the same lag between this and the third mm -hmm. um, of this conversation the next one we want to actually tackle so this has been sort of getting some terms on the board and just talking about what sexuality is and again a framework for it and then the next one to talk was what about this idea of gender and mm -hmm. how do the concepts of gender relationships as Keith defined it as the way we experience our sexuality and also the way Luke was talking, the way that we then live it out in culture. What does that look like in the ancient period? Why, why does the scripture assume these terms? Is it recommending that we have the same gender roles now that we did in the ancient period or, or how does Paul deal with all of that? So we'll, we'll try to tackle some of those concepts in the, in the next one that we come up to. So gentlemen, anything you want to leave us with or. No, that sounds good. And just again, Dan, um, thank you for your generous um, gift of your time and your your uh, thoughtfulness and uh, walking us through uh, and our people walking our people through um, these really important places of tension and discomfort uh, that we're all wrestling to yeah. find our way through. Right. Well, you're welcome for thank that. You. And I, yeah. I, I think uh, I speak for a lot of people that appreciate pastors willing to take this on 
you know, in a direct sort of way and be able to grapple mm -hmm. with them. Because, I, I, you know, the one thing the church can't do is a hide on an issue like this. It can't, yeah. it can't be quiet. It doesn't mean that we can come up with some definitive answers, but for two pastors to take it on this way is, I think, very noble and helpful. So thankful for that. Look forward to speaking to you on the, on the third one. Then. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.